We're going to talk about music today, and, and music's a powerful thing. We just can't imagine what the world would be like without music, without what we've been doing here this morning with our worship team leading us in the music. But it used to be that in order to hear music, you had to be where someone was making music, or you were making it yourself, either by singing it or playing it, like a mother singing a lullaby to her baby, a congregation singing in church, working men singing in the pubs. You can tell Pastor Wedge in pubs today. Plantation workers singing spirituals in the fields. Scottish and Irish immigrants singing what was called hillbilly or mountain music in the Appalachian Mountains. Wherever people got together, there was music. Then came the recording. But you still had to have a device on which to play your records. And then radio came along with a limited number of stations with limited power, so most people did not have access to a radio signal. And that all changed in 1939, when the Carter family started singing on radio station XERA. It was located in Mexico, and in order to avoid the laws and limitations set by the United States government on station power, it was called a border blaster at 250,000 watts, just across the Mexican border. To put that in perspective, uh, KBOI, the, the most powerful station in Idaho, is 50,000 watts. So this was 250,000 watts. The singing voices of the Carter family traveled across the airways and reached every part of the United States of America. You no longer had to go where music was being made. Families without electricity in their home, in the evening twilight, they connected their radios to their car batteries, and they would sit around the front of the car and, and listen to the Carter family singing. And as radio popularity grew, radio stations popped up all over the United States as they tried to compete with XERA. But let me ask this before we go any farther. Raise your hand if you've ever listened to music on a 75 RPM record. Wow. How about a 45 RPM? More hands. A 33 and a third? More hands. A cassette tape? An eight-track tape? <laughs> okay. A CD? How about on your smartphone or your cell phone or an MP3 player? Yeah. You know, it might surprise you to learn that hymns and what has been come to known as country gospel music has been recorded on all of those formats. It was back at the very beginning of recordings. And country gospel music originated as a blend of early mountain music, cowboy music, and music from the plantations of the Deep South. And now we're clearly aware that, aware that today music dominates our culture to a degree that it never has in the history of the human race. Like everything else that is now accessible through electronic means, it's all floating in the air out there and somewhere in cyberspace and can be immediately downloaded or played by almost an incomprehensible number of devices. And now we're exposed to everything and that means that there's an exposure to music that's beyond anything imaginable. Many people go around with, with earplugs, earphones in their ears. You've seen that, hear their favorite songs. You go into a grocery store or a dentist's office and music is playing. It's even playing when I'm pumping my gas. And we've all had the experience of hearing a song 
that brings back memories and even elicits an emotional response, don't we? Before my 50th class reunion this last September, many of my classmates started posting songs on Facebook that we used to listen to in high school. And each song brought back a different memory, different people, certain people and places, and experiences that we shared together. I was watching uh, Antiques Roadshow not too long ago, and they had a, a signed copy of uh, the Beatles' 45 RPM, Hard Day's Night. And that brought back memories, vivid memories. Because I bought my first record player at Floyd Brown's Radio Shack here in Emmett, your, what, your uncle? <laughs> your uncle. And had enough money at the time when I bought the record player, I had enough money left over to buy one record. And so I picked up It's a Hard Day's Night. The next morning, I got, after I bought the record, I got the flu and had to stay home. Do you know how many times you can play It's a Hard Day's Night in one day? <laughs> I bet you my mom could have told you. <laughs> you know, and then I, my record collection grew of 45s because Floyd would get demo records that were free on a regular basis because they were sent out to every radio station in the country and, and places like Radio Shack. And, uh, you know, so he had a big box. He could go in there and flip through them. And I, I remember since they were free to him, he sold them for a dime a piece. You know how your record collection can grow at, at 10 cents a piece? And with music, God has given us a wonderful and powerful gift. A gift that not only provokes significant memories, but it gives expression to the deepest feelings and desires of our hearts. And when God gives something to the whole world, as he does with music, it's called a common grace. A common grace. For example, God's sustaining care for his creation is a common grace to everybody. The Bible says that God through the Son upholds all things by the word of his power. He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. And God's gracious provision for his creatures is seen in the giving of the seasons, of seed time, and harvest, a common grace. So what is music? Music is the gift of God, a common grace to the world to give people a means of expressing their emotions, of expressing their desires and their hopes, their joys, their sorrows, their disappointments. And speaking of disappointments, you know what happens when you play country music backwards, don't you? You get your truck back, you get your dog back, you get your girl back, get your job back. <laughs> right? But for believers in Jesus Christ, music is so much more. Music is an expression of a worshipful and thankful heart. And for us as Christians, music is a gift of God to allow us to give expression of gratitude to God. Music is an expression of worshiping and thanking God for who he is, what he has done, and particularly for our salvation. The redeemed sing. That's what the redeemed do. Now, there's other songs that we enjoy. Some of you might enjoy classical music, right? No? Nice try. Okay, good. I'm glad somebody was here today that enjoys classical music. How about country music? Or jazz? Or pop? Or whatever it's called today. <laughs> I don't know what they call music today. Whatever it might be. You see, other styles of music have a place in our lives, like other common graces that God gives to us. But the song of the redeemed is far beyond that. 
So please turn once again to Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, the 15th verse. In the third chapter of Colossians, Paul's been talking about how we are to live now that we are redeemed, now that we are saved, how we are to walk as believers in Jesus Christ. And what he calls it is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to walk as Jesus would walk, to think as Jesus would think. And then he writes in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 3, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The word translated rule there, rule in your hearts, is is really a great word. It means to act as an umpire. We know what an umpire does. He calls balls, strikes, whatever it is. He's the one that says, that's right, that's wrong on on the ball field. Here it says, let the peace of Christ be the umpire. What does that mean? you got a problem, you've got to make a decision, you're caught in the midst of something, let the peace of Christ make that decision. I believe this is primarily having to do with remembering whose side we are on. You know, on a ball game, you're, you're on a particular side. This is remembering whose side we are on. Before coming to Christ, we were on the wrong side, right? Bible says in Romans, we were enemies of God. We were on the wrong side. We were seeking the wrong goals. And when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were reconciled to God. You became friends with God. You're on the right side. Therefore, having been justified by faith, says Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer at enmity with God. Through Christ and what he has done, we are at peace with God. We have peace of Christ. So we let the peace of Christ be the umpire. We let the peace of Christ make the decision. So you have a problem that comes into your life and you say, well, should I do that or or shouldn't I do that? Well, I've got to remember whose side I'm on. Christ and me are together at peace. Why would I want to leave that? (laughs) Christ and me are together. We're on the same side at peace. So I'd better do what he would want me to do. Let your newly established relationship with Jesus Christ, your oneness with him, your unity with him, be the determining factor of everything you do in your life. Then a wonderful thing happens. Then you will experience that inner rest, that inner calm in your heart that gives peace to your soul. You will not have rest for your soul until you do. If I'm going to make a decision, the empire in that decision is going to be Will it give peace to my soul? Will it give rest to my soul? Will it give me a sense of confident security that God is in this? And then Paul throws in the clincher and be thankful and be thankful. You just keep thanking the Lord for everything and it's amazing how peaceful you will be. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then let the word of God richly dwell in you, singing with thankfulness. Verse 16 of Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word translated dwell means to be at home, to live in in a way that uh, you're, you're at home there. The peace of Christ rules in our hearts and the word of Christ is at home in us. We are to make the word of Christ at home 
in our hearts. Now, most of you have probably had the experience of staying in a motel. Did you feel at home? No way. It wasn't comfortable. The mattress wasn't right. The heating and AC unit cranked out noise all night. And when you turned it off because you couldn't stand it anymore, then you could hear the neighbors doing something there or another. And there's just not enough room to be yourself. You don't have your comfortable recliner or chair. And you know that you are probably the 247th person in the world that was not comfortable in that room, right? Who was not home there, at home there. And so in order for the word of Christ to dwell in you, you have to welcome God's word and make it at home. The word translated richly as in richly dwell in you, means abundantly. It means to be jammed full of it. Someone said if you cut yourselves, you bleed Bible verses. You're packed so packed full of God's word, you've taken in God's word through preaching and teaching and your own study. It has filled you comfortably to the brim. It saturates you. You are dominated by God's word. And when the word of Christ richly dwells in us, then there's a tremendous result. We are able to teach and admonish one another in a very tremendous way through the corporate singing of the body of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with all psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here we see the singing in the gathered assembly of believers like we did here this morning. And it has both a teaching aspect and an admonishing aspect. You see, when we sing together, we teach one another and we admonish one another. We teach one another within accordance with God's word, and we exhort one another to live by God's word. We admonish one another. So when we come together for worship, not only do we approach God, which is the most important aspect of worship, to praise and, and uh, sing unto the Lord, but we also teach and admonish one another. Not only do we praise and give God thanks, we mutually encourage one another. Not only do we address God in worship, we address one another in teaching and admonishing one another. And so music has found a priority place in worship because it's the only thing, the only thing that we do together to teach and admonish one another. We all sing. We all lift our voices. We all sing to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And as Ephesians 5.19 adds in a similar verse, we make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And so if this is going to be worship that honors God and what we sing, the words we sing, the words must contain the truth because we are to worship in truth. So we must be singing sound, accurate, biblical revelation. And if it's to honor God, even the melodies of our hearts have to be those kinds of melodies that suit lofty expressions of divine truth. The words carry the truth. The melodies carry the emotions and the desires as we contemplate that truth. We know that in music there is emotion, there is desires. We're thinking about God in a way that uh, I know that if I look at Jerry on Sunday morning and she looks at me, if she's crying, I cry. If I cry, she cries. We do that because that's part of the emotion. And we all experience and feel that differently differently. 
But the melodies must carry that. And to express our worship by this means that we, it requires the highest and best quality of all musical quality. Music, if it's going to carry divine truth on its wings, it must be beautiful, it should be excellent, it should be skillfully played, it should be the very noblest of all possible expressions of music. John MacArthur says, You can't offer God-exalting, Christ-honoring praise, pouring out divine truth consistent with the glories of doctrine in a cheap or superficial tune. I want to add something about melody. The melody of the song must carry the tenor of the truth that's being told. For example, one version of the 23rd Psalm that's popular in a lot of hymnals can also be sung to the Marine hymn. The Lord is my shepherd. No, just doesn't work, does it? And I'm probably going to regret even telling you this next one. <laughs> but it'll make you think as you hear melodies on the radio or whatever. Goes is that really the right expression, the right of melody? Amazing Grace can be sung to the tune of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Now, don't think about that too long. Point made, melody matters. Now, all the kids are going to go out here this morning. (laughs) And MacArthur continues, God-exalting, Christ-honoring praise deserves the best. If our knowledge of the Lord in his glory is rich and full, lofty and awe-inspiring, so should our music be. And the music offered to God as a spiritual sacrifice of praise needs to avoid the world. It needs to reflect heaven. That means it demonstrates beauty, order, majesty, quality. That it has a design that shows some of the order of God's nature and some of the rich complexity of beauty. In order to accomplish this, Paul gives us three types of music that we are to sing. And the first is psalms. With all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms. The Greek word translated psalms means to pluck, as if you'd pluck a stringed instrument. It means the striking of the strings, literally. We could use the word strum or or to pick at it. Uh, They're called the psalms in the Old Testament because they were written to be accompanied by a stringed instrument. Often the harp, or there's another instrument, we don't know what it is exactly, it's a stringed instrument, it's called the gatith, the gatith. And write the first of Psalm 8, Psalm 81 and 84, it says right there, they were written for playing on the gatith, a stringed instrument. Now the word psalms, as we get to the New Testament, refers to the Psalter in the Old Testament. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, the 150 Psalms in the Old Testament. Psalms are the inspired writings in the book of Psalms set to the music and sung to the Lord. One of the things I enjoyed in college was the number of psalms that had been set to music to be plucked on the guitar as we would sit around a table and, and uh, the great melodies that were, the psalms were put to. And, and there were several at that time, you know, that were taken right out of, out of the Bible. So we'd say, turn to Psalm such and such, Psalm 119, whatever it is. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are righteous and, and true. And, and we'd just be strumming and playing and reading the words right out of God's word. Uh, some of the psalms are 
today. They're word for word from God's word. Others are slightly adapted for rhythm and melody. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And if you do a Google search, you can find hundreds of psalms set to music, many of them like the 23rd Psalm, word for word, and several versions of that. Some will expand the definition of a psalm to include any scripture passage that is set to music. I'm okay with that, but for me that better fits under the definition of a hymn. A hymn. So secondly, there are hymns. The word translated hymn is the Greek word humnos. In fact, it's a transliteration. It just comes from the Greek right into the English as hymn. And in the Greek Old Testament, humnos translates the Hebrew word hillel, which means praise. Hallelujah, which comes from hillel, means praise the Lord. Hillel Yahweh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hymns. After Jesus' disciples left the upper room, they sang a hymn. Paul and Silas sang hymns where they were in prison. Now, in the narrow sense, hymns refer to songs that glorify God for his attributes and his character. Hymns are full of deep biblical truth, full of good doctrine, the truth of who God is and what he has done, the truth of who Jesus is and and what he has done, all based in Scripture, the truth of God's Word. And hymns are a valuable aid to for worship because they help us to focus our attention and goodness on the glory of the Lord. And at the same time, we're teaching one another the great truths that are embodied in the hymn. The hymn, How Great Thou Art, for example, reminds us of God's majesty revealed in creation, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, and his coming return for his, all, for his own. All of these are matters of praise. Now, the New Testament contains many hymns that were sung by the early church. And one of those is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you want to turn back a couple of chapters in Colossians, beginning at verse 15 of the first chapter of Colossians. This was an early church hymn put to music. Now, we wonder how you'd put it to music because of the way it reads in, in our Bibles. But this is a hymn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also ahead of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or in heaven. Another hymn is found in Philippians chapter 2. If you turn back a few pages. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And you're familiar with these words, too. Beginning at the end of verse 5, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So hymns are to the New Testament what psalms are to the Old, and we are to sing both. And that brings us to spiritual songs. Now, spiritual songs does not refer to spirited music, as some think, but the adjective pneumatikai literally means spiritual songs or odes or spirituals. They are spiritual songs or odes, things put to music, songs of the Spirit. There are songs that are stirred by the Spirit of God. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit working in our lives. They are songs that direct people to Christ and inspire godly living. They are songs that we are to sing to one another to inspire and point us to Christ and inspire us to live for Him. So many spiritual songs emphasize personal testimony. They're testimony songs. And we have an example in Scripture in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 5, verse, verse 9. The ninth verse of Revelation chapter 5. And it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. You see, it's a testimony. Look what God has done for us. Look what God has done for us. This is an expression of our testimony. And when I think of a spiritual song, there's many. We sang several this morning. But I think of Keith Green's song, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. Remember the words of that song? Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. Your face is all I see. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. I want to take your word and shine it all around. But first, help me to just live it, Lord. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown, for my reward is giving glory to you. O Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clean. Replace the lamp of my first love that burns with holy fear. O Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. Then verse 17 of Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And with all of that, I want to say a little bit about the spiritual gift of music, because that, after all, is our theme these days. We find the spiritual gift of music mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Verse 6, the 14th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, the 26th verse. And here in this chapter 14, Paul is dealing with the, the misuse of the spiritual gifts in Corinth. And in the context of the worship of the gathered assembly, he points out that there are certain spiritual gifts that are being exercised and manifested in the body of Christ when they come together. And he says in verse 16, What is the outcome then? 
brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm. Each one has a psalm. And, and then it lists uh, a teaching, a revelation, interpretation, and tongues, and let all things be done for edification. Each one has a psalm. Now, each one doesn't mean everyone, that everyone has a psalm, everyone has a teaching, everyone has something else, but each one who shares vocally, as it were, in this case, has one of these spiritual gifts, and one of those spiritual gifts is vocally in a psalm, a gift of music given to the rest of the body of Christ. And so this, the, the spiritual gift of music can be defined this way. The spiritual gift of music is given so that the bearer may use it to verbally teach, admonish, and edify the assembled believers. Assembled believers. That came right out of what we read in Colossians. To call attention to Christ, the Word of God, and to the righteous praise of God. In the Old Testament, David was a spiritually gifted musician. He wrote many of the Psalms, and his music settled the soul of King Saul. And Samuel referred to David as the sweetest psalmist of Israel. Another gifted musician was Solomon, David's son. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 30 says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and a very great discernment and breadth of mind. He was wiser than all men. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He was a little bit short. Fanny Crosby wrote over 4,000, and Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000. But in the Old Testament, the extension of the gift of music included instrumentalists and singers in the temple, people with tambourines. Go figure. You know, what kind of gift does it take? I can't play a tambourine. I have not much rhythm. You know, it's like when I clap, it goes like this, you know. But uh, in others, the book of Psalms is not the only psalm in the Old Testament. You find them scattered throughout, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. When they came, came out of Egypt and crossed the water, Miriam led with her spiritual gift of music and a psalm. And the spiritual gift of music today in the local church here is, is used in any ministry that's related to music. By those who sing or they play an instrument, by those who lead in worship, as well as those who are blessing the church by writing and composing, putting the psalms to music and writing hymns and, and spiritual songs. We think of the Gaithers, Andre Crouch, we sang their songs this morning. Stuart Townhan, who wrote In Christ Alone and other songs. Michael W. Smith, Michael Carr, John Peterson, Ralph Carmichael. And I could go on and on, adding to the names, as I said, with Charles Wesley and Fanny Crosby and hundreds more throughout the ages who have blessed us with this remarkable gift. And this remarkable gift gives us a vehicle, a musical expression of our emotions and desires by which we teach and admonish one another, singing with thankfulness to our hearts to God. And like all spiritual gifts, whether you're an instrumentalist or a singer or you're writing and composing, like all the spiritual gifts, every one of them, the gift of music must be developed. We are all called upon, whatever our spiritual giftedness is, to develop that. Just because you have the gift doesn't mean you don't have to practice. And you don't have to practice for hours. And you don't have to study. And don't, you know, you know we need to study so we honor the Lord with the best quality music we can produce. And every one of us, whatever our giftedness, as you discovered or you already know it, Make a biblical study of your own spiritual gift. Either buy a book on it or get into God's word yourself and say, 
Boy, what does it say about music? I, I, I think music is one of the most beautiful studies we can find to take God's word and, and study it. And when it comes to the use of all of our spiritual gifts, especially those that lead in worship or even those that preach and teach, I thought of the wise words of A.W. Tozer. And these words apply today just as they did over 60 years ago when he wrote them. And Tozer speaks of the importance of the truth of God's word as people are kind of drifting away from that importance. And they're still doing that today. And so Tozer's words both encourage us and they admonish us concerning the true nature of worship. And he wrote, Basic beliefs about the person and the nature of God have changed so much, we can say in our day and his day, that there are among us now men and women who find easy to brag about the benefits they receive from God without ever a thought or a desire to know the true meaning of worship. I have immediate reactions to such an extreme misunderstanding of the true nature of a holy and sovereign God. And then he says, For I believe that the very last thing God desires is to have shallow-minded and worldly Christians bragging about him. Beyond that, it does not seem to be very well recognized that God's highest desire is that every one of his believing children should so love and so adore him. We are continually in his presence, in spirit and in truth. And he says something wonderful and miraculous and life-changing takes place within the human soul when Jesus Christ is invited in to take his play, rightful place. When, God, when Jesus is invited in to be at home in our hearts. That is what God anticipated when he wrought the plan of salvation. He intended to make worshipers out of rebels to restore the place of worship which our first parents knew when they were created. And with that said, I am very thankful to God for those of you in our church who lead us in worship, who play the piano, who sing up front, who lead us in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that the word of Christ might richly dwell within us with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts. Shall we pray? Father, I'm not sure mere words can express our thankfulness when it comes to the the gift of music that you have given us and the gifted people who share with us in music, Father. And then I think, no, words cannot totally express it because that's why you gave us music. (laughs) So we have a melody of expression of thankfulness to you, Father. And we're going to continue with that thankfulness as we sing two more great songs this morning where we will teach and admonish one another. And for this, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.